0: By downloading or listening to this podcast, you are agreeing to Moody's legal terms and conditions found at moody's.com slash disclaimer, including that the information provided is not investment or financial advice, and that Moody's will not be liable for losses arising from your use of the information.
1: Hello, listeners, and welcome to Behind the Bonds, connecting the dots on corporate credit. I'm Tanya Hall, and I'm your host for this special Moody's 2023 Outlook campaign episode. Today, we're looking ahead at what the coming year has in store for companies globally. First off, I'll be discussing what's driving our outlook for credit fundamentals region by region with a very special guest. And then my colleague Yvette Cantro, will be taking a deeper dive into the prospects for the consumer product sector. Now, we all know the saying that things can only get better, and listeners, I wish that were true, but I'm afraid to say that Moody's outlook for non-financial companies for 2023 is negative in most regions globally. And by negative, we mean that compared with this year, credit fundamentals will be worse. Here to explain what the big issues are, which are driving our outlooks, I'm thrilled to be joined for the first time on Behind the Bonds by the global head of Moody's corporate finance group, Miriam Durand. Miriam, it's lovely to have
2: you here. Delighted to be with you this morning, Tania. So,
1: Miriam, let's start with the big picture. Can you summarize our outlook for non-financial companies for 2023?
2: As you just said, our outlooks are generally negative. This time last year, as we looked forward to 2022, our outlooks for credit fundamentals across the regions were all stable. For 2023, only our outlook for Asia Pacific, excluding China, is stable. The rest are all negative, indeed. Hmm. So why is this? What's happened exactly? Well, it's a combination of the legacy of the pandemic and then Russia's invasion of Ukraine in February. This has set in motion a sharp turn in the credit cycle for the worse. Inflation has risen sharply in many countries and big central banks, led by the US Federal Reserve, are raising interest rates. But what's driving our outlooks does vary across the regions. It's not the same things or the same combination of things everywhere. Okay, so what are some of the differences then? Well, in North America, higher interest rates will reduce demand from consumers and businesses alike. Wage growth will not keep up with inflation, pinching consumer purchasing power. The U.S. labor market is still tight, but consumer sentiment has slumped and we don't think this will improve while interest rates are rising. Pant-up demand for goods, which were hard to get in the middle of the pandemic, has also eased off. Unemployment will probably rise. And we are seeing early signs that household balance sheets are strained. Rising interest rates also mean consumer credit performance will probably deteriorate.
1: Okay, so how
2: is the situation
1: different in EMEA then, in uh, what we call Europe, Middle East and Africa?
2: Uh, Here, the effect of the conflict in Ukraine is adding to the pressures. There is a lot of geopolitical uncertainty because we don't know when the conflict will be resolved and how. Many European countries rely on gas from Russia and supply has pretty much dried up. So the cost of energy has soared. This will continue to squeeze margins in industries like the chemical industry, for example. And rising costs have eaten into consumer disposable income and hit confidence. So demand is softer across many consumer-driven sectors, like retail and discretionary consumer products. And is inflation an issue in other regions then, Marie? Yes, very much so in Latin America, uh, because inflation will be a drag on economic growth next year. And that's the main reason we have a negative outlook here. Tighter credit conditions will reduce access for cross-border issuance and increase the cost of debt. And increased unemployment will also weigh on consumer-focused companies' revenues, margins, and cash flow as people spend less. The strong U.S. dollar will increase prices for Latin American consumers. This all increases social risks and makes income inequality worse. Okay. What about China then? Is it the same story there? No, in China it's different. Domestic challenges, mostly stemming from the property sector combined with external risks, are driving the negative outlook. Property sales will continue to decline, but at a slower rate. And in terms of funding conditions, state-owned companies will be able to access funds, but financially weak property developers will find this more difficult because lenders will remain cautious and selective despite recent government support measures. Okay, and there are still COVID restrictions in China, right? Yes, very much so. The government's zero-COVID policy will dampen business and consumer sentiment. The Ukraine-Russia crisis is also causing lingering supply chain disruptions. Ongoing geopolitical tensions will lower capital inflow. And slowing global growth and higher interest rates that we discussed earlier in other countries will hurt demand for China exports.
1: But then in the rest of Asia, as we said earlier,
2: our outlook is stable so Why is that? Well, Tanya, the outlook here reflects continued, though slowing economic and earnings growth in 2023. GDP growth will remain strong, particularly in India and Indonesia, and business conditions will will continue to be mostly supportive. So that's a differentiating factor versus the other regions. Consumer spending has started to recover from the pandemic lows But rising costs will curb companies' profit margins and consumer purchasing power, slowing further improvement. And tighter financial conditions and weaker consumer demand outside the region could eventually slow economic activity here too.
1: Okay, so what does all of this mean for credit quality, especially now there are so many highly leveraged companies out there?
2: Yes. Well, as you would probably expect, that means we expect default rate to rise in 2023 and refinancing has indeed become a lot tougher recently. High yield bond and leveraged loan issuance has collapsed this year. But issuance will pick up again, rising. We just don't know exactly when and rising interest rates will create significant challenges for lower rated companies, especially those owned by private equity firms. There is still cushion there. A lot of companies refinanced before this year's storm hit. So there is some, if you wish, some good news. But weaker credit quality will definitely weaken their ability to access capital.
1: Okay, thank you for that very neat summary. And as I'm listening to you, there seems to be one big common thread across the regions, and that's reliance on consumer demand. So what companies are more vulnerable generally if this slows further?
2: I know we're going to be talking about this in the second part of this episode, but if I were to summarize, generally, consumer-facing sectors, including retail and packaged goods, will come under the highest stress next year. Our outlook for the US and European retail and apparel sectors are negative because of this. But things like advertising, which depends on consumer sentiment, will probably also struggle. In Asia-Pac, consumer spending on things like PCs and smartphones will also slow. This will affect consumer electronic and semiconductors manufacturers.
1: Okay. Is there a risk then that slowing demand will spread to other sectors?
2: Yes, there is, definitely. We think construction demand will probably slow as mortgage rates continue to climb and business activity declines. Another example could be the auto sector, Production costs are going up because of the rising cost of raw materials, labor, and energy. We think consumers might start to opt for cheaper new vehicles with smaller engines and fewer features, and these are less profitable. But in India, for example, auto demand is still very strong.
1: And are people still going out and spending on leisure and, and fun stuff? Will that help companies in hospitality and tourism, for example?
2: Leisure, lodging and restaurant companies might see a slowdown in demand because, again, this is discretionary spending. And companies face rising costs in most regions with the cost of energy an issue in Europe. However, we still have a positive outlook on the hospitality sector globally.
1: What about airlines? I mean, I took two long-haul flights this year after nearly two years
2: of being grounded. I'm sure I'm not the only one, right? Yes, that's right. Airlines is an interesting case. They will bug the trend in other consumer-facing sectors. The industry is still recovering from the pandemic, and there is still a lot of pent-up demand. European airlines are more dependent on long-haul travel volumes than their US counterparts, and these are taking longer to recover. We don't rate a lot of airlines in Asia, but travel uh, throughout this region will improve as countries including Japan and Korea ease or even remove restrictions.
1: So on the flip side, what are some of the sectors which are likely to perform more
2: strongly in the coming year, Miriam? Yeah, you're right. Maybe we can finish on a positive note. Uh, Telecom, technology and media are better insulated from the economic downturn. And demand will stay probably stable for healthcare and pharma companies, which have both improved since the pandemic. We also changed our outlook on the global energy sector to stable from positive in September, because we think demand will slow in step from the global economic slowdown. But we still expect strong cash flow generation for oil and gas producers in the coming year.
1: Well, it's good to hear it's not all doom and gloom, and it's a nice note to end our conversation. So thank you so much for joining me here today, Miriam. Now, listeners, as we've already said, consumer-focused companies will struggle in the coming year. Here to discuss the sector's prospects in more depth is my colleague,
3: Yvette Cantreau. Yvette, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Tanya. As you and Miriam just discussed, consumers are hunkering down as record high inflation and the economic slowdown hits home. It's a different picture than we saw just a few months ago, when pent-up demand, fat savings accounts, and high employment rates kept consumers spending, even though prices were already on the rise. Here to talk about what that shift means for the companies that can sell consumers everything from food to beverages to dishwashers to cigarettes is Linda Montag, a Senior Vice President in our New York office. Welcome to the podcast, Linda.
0: Thanks, Yvette. I'm happy to be here.
3: So Linda, we've just heard Tanya and Miriam talk about how mounting inflation, rising interest rates, and the fear of unemployment is denting consumer sentiment around the globe. How is that affecting the consumer product companies that you and your team follow?
0: Well, most of them are under a lot of pressure. Not only are many consumer product companies dealing with weakening demand after they had surges during the pandemic, but their costs have been rising rapidly, whether for freight, labor, commodities, all of that since the middle of last year. As anyone who's been to the supermarket can tell you, companies, for the most part, have been able to pass on these costs to consumers by raising their prices, sometimes multiple times. But people are feeling more and more squeezed these days because inflation is broad-based, and we expect that they will eventually push back against these higher prices, especially if there's a recession and unemployment begins to rise. That's the biggest risk for the sector. Is that situation going
3: to affect all consumer segments equally? I imagine some will fare better than others during a downturn.
0: That's right. Most obviously, companies that sell essentials, such as packaged food and beverages, personal care, and certain other consumer staples, will remain the most resilient. So think cereal, pasta, toothpaste, and toilet paper. These things are simply essential to people. So people will keep buying them, especially in developed markets. Still, further rounds of price hikes will force some consumers, especially those with lower incomes, to trade down to cheaper, private label versions of branded products or to cut back on consumption altogether. Do bigger branded companies fare better? For sure. That's why effective branding is so important. Companies with strong, well-known brands and good innovation that brings value to the consumer will have a much better chance at maintaining consumer loyalty. But even some of their most loyal consumers might switch to buying items in smaller quantities or only when they're on sale. What
3: about the companies that make these private label brands that you mentioned? They must be sitting pretty right now.
0: Is that right? Yes and no. It's true demand for their products is increasing as the economic picture is darkening, assuming that their price advantage holds when compared to branded alternatives. But most private label companies have thin margins to begin with, so they feel the cost pressures more than their branded competitors. And supply chains are challenged. For example, smaller private label companies have really struggled with procurement, and many rely on third parties to get their product to market, while bigger branded companies have direct store delivery and can do this themselves, or they have greater influence with third party carriers. So in some cases, private label companies can't meet the increasing demand. And they have a lot less pricing power than their branded competitors, so as their costs rise, it's harder for them to pass on those price increases quickly to consumers.
3: Okay, so let's talk about some other segments that will have an edge during a downturn. Who
0: else do you see doing well? Well, tobacco for sure. Tobacco companies have extraordinary pricing power due to the addictive nature of the product, which will allow them to maintain their margins even if inflation pushes people to trade down to cheaper brands. And then there's beverages, which have relatively low private label penetration and some beauty products. Both will continue to see stronger demand from the consumer's greater mobility as the pandemic recedes. Both will benefit from the resumption of travel given the importance of duty-free sales to both beauty and alcoholic beverages. And in many global markets, drinks are consumed mostly in bars, restaurants, entertainment, and sport venues. So, as lockdowns end and people go out more, they will spend more on drinks, including single-serve drinks, which are very profitable for the companies that sell them. But aren't these categories facing cost inflation too? Definitely. They face cost challenges as well, but they feel the pinch less, because they'll continue to benefit from volume recovery after slowdowns during the pandemic thus allowing them to grow operating profit dollars even if margins are pressured.
3: I see. So previously you mentioned beauty. Let's get back to that. How does beauty fit into this picture?
0: Well, if you're going out more, you're going to want to buy some cosmetics to wear at the bar. And you might even trade up from your usual drugstore brand to something more premium because it is an affordable luxury. In fact, we expect prestige beauty to do better than mass beauty in a downturn due to the lipstick effect. Cash strapped consumers will treat themselves to small luxury items like a fancy lipstick or fragrance, even when other bigger ticket luxury items are out of their reach.
3: Got it. Yeah. So you mentioned consumers are going out more in the wake of the pandemic, which is definitely good for some consumer product companies. But if you're worried about your job or inflation or maybe paying your heating bill, if you're in Europe, are you really going to want to spend your money on going out more?
0: Well, one thing to keep in mind is that consumers aren't cutting spending across the board. In the wake of the pandemic, many are shifting their spending away from goods and putting it into experiences after they've been locked down at home. There's a lot of pent-up demand for socializing, travel, and entertainment. That's the opposite of what was happening during the pandemic. How so? Well, back then, people spent money to upgrade their homes, whether it was to buy a new grill or television, remodel a kitchen, maybe even buy a new piano. That kind of spending is slowing. There's lower demand for big-ticket discretionary items, which are always the first to show signs of consumer strain. So what does that mean
3: for the companies that make and sell those kinds of items?
0: Well, a lot will depend on their business mix. Take, for example, a boating company. It's likely to sell a lot fewer expensive new boats during a downturn which could pressure its revenues and profits. But if that same company also provides replacement parts, that part of the business will likely do better. Many of their customers might delay buying a new boat, but will buy parts to better maintain the one that they've got. So business diversity is key.
3: And what about size? Is size key too?
0: Yeah, definitely. Larger companies can better withstand volatility and demand. They're more likely to be diversified than smaller ones, and they're better positioned to weather the supply chain problems that continue to plague all kinds of companies because their scale gives them more clout with suppliers and distributors. At the high end of the rating scale, they also carry less leverage and more of it at fixed rates, which means they'll be less pressured by higher interest costs as well.
3: Got it. So before we wrap up, Linda, tell us what you see as the biggest challenges facing the industry as we enter 2023. What should investors be on the lookout
0: for? Well, we saw extraordinary price increases in 2022, and some input costs will continue to rise in 2023. Supply chain challenges will also continue to increase companies' costs. So the biggest risk is that consumers or retailers will begin to push back more on higher prices, which would pressure consumer products companies' already squeezed margins and their profitability. Smaller, less diversified companies with lower margins or less pricing power will be the most vulnerable. But larger companies face risks, too. Everyone's costs are climbing. And right now, companies are absorbing more of those costs than they're passing on to consumers.
3: Well, thank you for joining us, Linda. You've certainly given us some interesting food for thought, even if it's more expensive food. And now I'm going to send it back to Tanya in London, who will wrap things up for us. Tanya?
1: Thanks, Linda and and Miriam, too, for sharing your thoughts on 2023. It does sound like for many companies around the globe, credit conditions are going to be tough. But there are some bright spots and opportunities too. And so much will hinge on how we, the consumers, react and spend. Or not. So, that's today's edition of Behind the Bonds with me, Tanya Hall, in London. If you liked this podcast, please do like and subscribe or follow us on your favourite service. You can also find all of our previous episodes and other Moody's podcasts in one place at moody's.com slash podcasts. Finally, on behalf of the Behind the Bonds team in front of and behind the mic, I'd like to wish you all health and happiness in the coming year. Until 2023, then, it's bye for now. Goodbye.
0: Thanks for listening to this Moody's Talks podcast. To find out more about the topics discussed, Please follow the links in the show notes. You can check out other Moody's Talks podcasts by visiting moody's.com slash podcasts.